Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. You're listening to Around the Dial, your one-stop shop for sports talk's best moments every day. Here's your host, CBS Sports Radio's Damon Amendolara. Welcome inside Around the Dial, the best in your sports talk for Friday, August the 2nd. I'm your host, D.A. Another day for people around Major League Baseball to soak in the fact that one of the best teams in the league just added the best pitcher on the market to an already strong rotation. The Houston Astros celebrating, at least their fans and media are, after the acquisition of Zach Granke, giving the Astros a thoroughly dominant Verlander Cole Granke 1-2-3 at the top of the rotation going into October. The Astros have already won a World Series two years ago. Last year, one of the best teams in baseball again before falling in the ALCS. And now they're loaded for Bear going for another. General Jeff Luno was asked by Clinton Kamla on Sports Radio 610 in Houston about being mentioned alongside the Red Sox, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cubs, the traditional powerhouses. And he says that was our plan the entire time. That was our call, and I know it was not the easiest uh, track getting here. You know, obviously got to the World Series in 05, and then it was a steady slide down and a couple years at the bottom that weren't that much fun for our fans. But we had a plan, Jim a plan. We were going to build this organization back up to the point where we could consistently compete for championships over an extended period of time. And, you know, 15, we came uh, one game away from going to the championship series. 17, we won it all last year, American League Championship Series. And, you know, this year, I think we've got one of the best baseball. So anything can happen in the postseason. We're aware of that. But I think we've done everything we can to put ourselves in a position for this team to have the best chance possible to win another World Series this year and hopefully beyond. There's no question about that. Jeff Luno uh, joining us here, the Astros general manager on Clint and Kamla. And uh, a couple of questions for you here, Jeff, in terms of how this all went down. Um, how close to the deadline was this completed? We agreed on, we had two deals going at the same time. The Maldonado deal had been done earlier, but the Toronto deal and working on Arizona. Arizona had been dead for about two hours and then it resurfaced about uh, 2.30 Central time yesterday, and in the in the five minutes that followed, uh, we finally got agreement on the players and the money. And so we had 25 minutes once we agreed upon the players and the money to review medical files, to fill out all the paperwork, submit all the appropriate emails, and get everybody signed off. And when that process all finished, we had a, we looked up and we had about a minute left on the on the board. So we got it in time. It you know it never felt like it was going to go away due to the clock, but uh, it was definitely a, an exhilarating and kind of a, I don't really remember everything that happened those last 25 minutes because we had people running left and right and making phone calls, but we got it done. And it wasn't uh, you know it took about eight minutes, eight nine minutes after the deadline for the news to break. Uh, in the meantime, I was calling the players and letting them know that they had been traded, which is always a challenging thing to do. Uh, you know, has to be done, obviously. And once you call the players, then the news tends to get out because they tell their family, their agents, everybody else. So that's how it transpired yesterday. I love it. Thank you for the detail on that. And in that half hour, if a family member's buzzing you on on a text or on a phone, <laughs> like, no, not right now. We got to get Zach Granke. Um, all right. Uh, another question about all the rumors before, Jeff. 
Zach Wheeler we heard, Noah Syndergaard we heard, you know, that uh, the report was didn't want to give up Kyle Tucker and stuff for him. Madison Bumgarner, the day before the trade deadline, it was like, all right, Astros and Madison Bumgarner, something may be happening there. Um, how close were you to acquire any of the, acquiring any of those guys? Well, I'll tell you, we, we pursued uh, all of those pitchers and more, and we wanted to see if there was a possibility. And we, were, we had a board of the di- different deals and how we liked them and basically the impact the player would have on us and the cost uh, and the impact on the future of the organization. The Granky deal was always at the top in terms of players we thought we could acquire that would have uh, a really meaningful impact, not only this year, but for the next couple of years but we really didn't think it was possible due to the financial investment that was required. So it was sort of hanging there in the background, but as those other deals didn't come to fruition because they either got traded to other teams or it was clear that maybe they were in the market, maybe they weren't. The, uh, the other side was holding such a high price that it was clear they really didn't want to trade them. Um, that's when, and that was probably with 24, 36 hours left that we started to relook at the Granky thing and bring, you know, Jim came in and, we went through the numbers with him, and, and, and he made the decision that uh, we should go after it and that uh, the organization would be willing to fund it. And once that decision was made, um, then it was a matter of negotiating the best possible deal. Now, you've got to give so much credit to the Astros organization for having seen this vision and executing it. When they're losing 110 games a season for a number of years and stripping it down, who could have seen this as the payoff? It's really, it's just a wing and a prayer. And yet here we are a number of years later, and they are routinely the best team in baseball over the last three seasons, or at least one of them. And they're not satisfied with just one championship. Now they are the rich getting richer. And when did you ever say that? about the Astros. This was an interesting trade deadline. The Chicago Cubs were active. General Manager Theo Epstein did make a series of moves, but is that enough to put Chicago over the top as the Cubs also chased their second world championship of this regime? There was a flurry of deals, but none of them real blockbusters, and some of the biggest names weren't moved. So here is Epstein joining Mully and Haw on the score 670 in Chicago. What made this deadline so unique? Every trade deadline, you're, you're, you're always looking at uh, myriad opportunities, uh, trying to create opportunities for, for big transformational things that, um, you know, that would make you better, not only for now, but for the long term. And, you know, for every, for every 20 deals that, that um, you know, you conceive or you think might be there for you, oh, you know, maybe one gets to happen. So, you know, you never accomplish everything that you want to, but we were really satisfied um, with the outcome. This was the busiest trade deadline day ever. 30 trades were made, Theo. And did that make it easier or harder to make a deal? And can you take us inside the room? The last 20 minutes, the way it was reported, was when this Castellanos deal came together with the Tigers. Yeah, no, it was. It got pretty frenetic. I think, you know, uh, there were probably as many deals uh, executed in that last half hour around baseball um, as there have been on, on any trade deadline. And, I think a lot of that was the new the new rules with the no no August um, waiver deals anymore. Um, teams are still trying to um, figure out the new landscape. I think they every every team had an idea of what it meant for them, but didn't necessarily uh, have a full grasp on on how the other twenty nine teams would look at it. So you're dealing with anytime you're dealing with new variables, I think it can create. Um, 
uh, a tendency to be patient and wait right until you can't anymore, and that's the purpose of deadlines. And then just given the nature of, of the standings, it was a really odd year uh, because I think, every, I think everyone felt like things would, things would stratify uh, across baseball and the standings by, by the end of uh, July. That, you know, you made calls at the beginning of July. Everyone was saying that they were, you know, they were hanging in there and they wanted to see how they'd, they'd play over the next several weeks. And I think everyone felt like, well, some teams are going to fall out of it and, and be sellers. And, and that really just didn't happen. And then a couple of teams that had been sort of publicly identified as sellers uh, really felt like they were close to winning um, next year, had a chance to really contend next year. So they weren't as interested in selling. And a couple of them even looked to, to add. And then just uh, unique circumstances um, led to, a, a, a quite odd trade deadline. So things things came together late. We had a you know a lot of deals we were working on, and it, it looked at, it looked like a you know there was a chance that we weren't going to be able to add that bat uh, up until the last couple minutes. And we we ended up agreeing on players maybe with ten or so minutes to go, and then um, you know the financial component of the deal was still an issue. And you know Tom Ricketts really stepped up incredibly supportive um allowed us in, in those last couple of minutes to get a deal done meanwhile we were working on the uh cj edwards brad wick trade as well we had you know people with cell phones everywhere running into different rooms and that that was actually a three-team trade because we had to secure some international money from from colorado so yeah it was a little bit crazy but um we were able to get things done i think we officially entered the castellanos uh trade with I don't know, the last 30 seconds maybe to go, but that was just in the medical process the last minute. We knew, we knew we'd get it done about uh, 2.59. I think the intention is good around baseball to have one trade deadline to get the flurry of moves in there and so that there is one day or at least the countdown to one day where everything happens. And that kind of can capture the public imagination, get the media reports all over, draw attention to the league without having those non-waiver and waiver different trade deadlines. But at the end of the day, as Theo kind of alluded to, there wasn't the separation in the league between the good teams, the contenders, and the bad teams, the sellers. And without that separation, there weren't teams willing to part with some of the biggest names. And so maybe it makes more sense for there to be one trade deadline, but instead split the difference. Do it mid-August, perhaps, two weeks from now, instead of having to force everybody to decide whether they are buyers and sellers with two months to play. On the gridiron and off the gridiron, this is Hall of Fame weekend in the NFL, and one of the greatest safeties ever to do it, perhaps the best, was Ed Reed, longtime Baltimore Raven great. Rex Ryan's now an analyst. Once upon a time, he was a head coach. But before that, he was an assistant coach watching Ed do his thing for the Ravens organization. Rex joins Scott and Jeremy on 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore to discuss his first impression of the kid from the U with the funny hair. What's your first memory? Ed gets drafted in 2002. You're coaching the D-line. What do you remember about this kid that walked through the door from the U? Well, I would always be a part of the draft, so Ozzie was great. He, you know, he let us as, as coaches be part of the draft, and we kind of figured out where it was going. And, and uh, the thing I remember most about it, about the draft specifically, was 
that I, I, I mean, I, I forget the number exactly where Ed was drafted, but he was rated that player. So we got lucky as hell to get him. Mm-hmm. Be yeah, honest. because a lot yeah. of times you get the seventeenth guy on the board if you're picking twenty three, right? Right. Yeah. And and he was basically our twenty third player, and we lucked into it. There's no other way of putting it. We absolutely lucked into it, and and obviously the rest is history. But it literally came down to him and a kid from Stanford that played the same position. And the other kid was big, fast, and all that tank or whatever his name was. Uh-huh. But there was no comparison to those two kids. And and I remember they had they had uh, they had done a documentary on um, they were following uh, Ed's football team. And I just remember how passionate the kid was and all that. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't wait, you know, to see him. And then he shows up, and you're seeing this guy. He's not that big. You know, he's got the funny hair, he's got <laughs> all this type of stuff. But I know one thing, it, you know, and it's funny because immediately at the mini camps, he never made that kind of impact. But as soon as we put the pads on, that's when you saw Ed Reed. And it was pretty obvious that we had something special there. Tell me what he allowed you to do with your defense because of his skill set back there. Well, really everything. And he was a guy that really tied in to being creative. And you kind of allow him like creative freedom, and and uh, sometimes, you know, I would I would call these fronts that automatically meant you can move around, you can do all that stuff. But I was like, oh my gosh, because sometimes he'd be lined up at corner and then drop back in the middle third. Like he was he was amazing that way. Had great timing on blitzes. Had you know he knew where to be, and he also knew how to play the quarterbacks. He studied those quarterbacks so well, and and he, he knew if he gave his body one direction that he could get the quarterback influence the other way. Because many times quarterbacks try to to move safeties, mm-hmm. you know, sure. and like the good ones try to move safeties. Well, Ed did just the opposite. He moved the ball, and he was he was that way. He was so unusual that way. And the other thing is his return skills were second to none, and. Uh, you know, so blocking he, he kicks, returning kicks. Yeah, he did it all. Oh yeah, he was a big play waiting to happen, and and not just by turning the ball over, but by sticking it in the end zone. You know, he was complete player. You know, everybody's has the best free safety. Ed Reed would have been the best linebacker. Like, for, mm-hmm. like he was, he was amazing. You know, a, a hitter had range, great ball skills, smart, played man coverage, zone coverage, high, low. You can put him anywhere, and so he was the coach's dream. What's really cool about that anecdote is Rex admitting that it was between Ed Reed and a kid, a safety from Stanford, who I got to imagine was Tank Williams, who was a safety out of the Cardinal organization, the Cardinal program, that ended up going to the Titans mid-second round. It literally came down to him and a kid from Stanford that played the same position. And the other kid was big, fast, and all that tank or whatever his name was. (laughs) Yikes! Think about the difference of those two players' careers. Now, Tank Williams ended up having a fine post-playing career. He's apparently in real estate now and also a fantasy football analyst. But Ed Reed's one of the greatest ever to do it. And pretty cool, pretty wild to think about how different Ed's career and perhaps the Ravens organization is as a whole had they not gone down the road of the kid with the funny hair from the U and instead went with Tank Williams out of Stanford. 
All right, on to college football and the very rare double dip from the same show on the same station from the same day. Our friends Jamie and Stoney, we love them around here on Around the Dial from 97 to 1, the ticket, did a lot of cool college football talk and college football just around the corner. So let's start here. College football's polls are out, at least the top 25 from a coach's standpoint. And wouldn't you know it, instead of talking about the ACC with the dominant team Clemson defending national champs or the usual powerhouse SEC, you've got the Big Ten dotting the top 25 and really ranked pretty high in this one, including a couple of teams that were disappointments last year in the state of Michigan. So here's Jamie Stoney breaking down the Big Ten flavor of the top 25. So my first blush at this is, wow, there's a lot of teams from the Big Ten in here. And then I looked over to see who the coaches who are voting for this, and half the Big Ten coaches are participating, including uh, D'Antonio, Frost, Franklin, Day, Fitzgerald, the great Chris Ash of Rutgers, Jeff Brahm of Purdue. So I understand there's a little bias there. But locally, look, I, I'm a Michigan football fan. Yes, I mean, I'm always a little pessimistic to begin with. However, you can, how can coaches look at a team, and I know you're not supposed to go back on what happened the year before, but what happened in the last two games of last year and the history where they really, unfortunately, have never won big games, how can you rank Michigan seventh in the country with the knowledge that, yes, up until the Ohio State and the Florida games, and I'm not trying to diminish them because they were huge, you know, arguably some of the best members of their defense, Devin Bush, Rashawn Gary, David Long, uh, Chase Winovich, among others, they're not going to be on this football team. So you have to, I wouldn't say rebuild the defense, retool a little bit because a lot of the guys who are going to be playing has have experience and they should be pretty good. But seventh, I, I just think that's a little lofty if you ask me. Well, I think both Michigan and Michigan State are too high. Like, like if you're asking me, Michigan State shouldn't be ranked coming off a seven and six year. They still have the defense coming back, but did they make any changes? You know, offensively, there's still major concerns. And when you look at Michigan, I, I'm right there with you. How did this team get better? You know, well, everybody assumes that they got better. Everybody's assuming, and you know what happens when you assume that with the new offense, uh, they have you know they're going to use their three really talented wide receivers. A, a veteran offensive line, which got better towards the end. And, you know, what can you say about consistency in the offensive line? That's what they're... They've you know, tried new at- offenses several times already under Jim Harbaugh, whether it be, you know, Jed Fish the first year, which I think was the most successful. Then it was Tim Drevno running the show. And then they wanted to bring in Pep Hamilton to change things and be the passing game coordinator. Now, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to believe a first-time play caller and Josh Gaddis is going to be the guy? I, I mean... I just don't understand how you go from 10 and three losing in embarrassing fashion. Right. You know, really, even against Notre Dame, it really wasn't a great game. No. Ohio State, same thing. A lot of guys sat out the bowl game. It is what it is. But you go from that, losing a ton of NFL talent, right. to now all of a sudden they're back to being a top 10 team, top 18. Now, a lot of their defensive players, you know, Uche and, uh, you know, Cleek Hudson. Even Aiden Hutchinson stepping into bigger roles, uh, you know, though. Yes, I mean, you got to be playing Quid, at a higher level Quiddy and Pei, more consistent. People like that who the people think are going to be really, really good. I, I, I agree. I, I think seven is way too high for them. I mean, look, this is about the brand recognition of Michigan. This is 
the good and the bad of Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh takes over that Michigan program and expectations go through the roof. I mean, being a top 10 program in America is just an expectation and almost an afterthought. Of course, we're going to be a top 10 team. And I think most people observing this program assume they're going to once again compete for a Big Ten championship and thus a spot of the college football playoff. But with how the Wolverines have consistently lost big games and lost to Ohio State and lost their rivalry games, it's kind of crazy just to assume they're going to be up there in the top seven, especially after those guys mentioned all of the defections on the defensive side of the football. This is what's great about Harbaugh and terrible about Harbaugh. Harbaugh gets you the attention of the expectations because he's so front and center and he has elevated what to assume the Wolverines are capable of. But in terms of actually executing that, he never does it. And so putting them in the top seven preseason is absolutely an overranking. Now, from college football's larger standpoint, attendance, we've heard Nick Saban gripe about his students at Alabama not coming out to support one of the best teams in college football year in, year out, if not the best, a modern-day dynasty. And We've had other guys, Pat Fitzgerald, head coach Northwestern, discuss the problem with attendance in college football is everybody's addicted to the phone. So what's the larger case here? Well, it's also Jamie and Stoney with, again, the rare double dip on Around the Dial. Let's hear what they had to say. If a place like Alabama is having an attendance issue or they're struggling to get people to, to go to a game, that's going to trickle on down well, sa- well, everywhere. Well, Saban got pissed at like a couple of years ago because they were playing like Louisiana Monroe or one of yes. those schools, and they didn't sell out the student section. People left early, you know. But you know what? You're playing Louisiana Monroe. Schedule a real team. What do you expect? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, the, the, essentially, Alabama is going through the process of trying to pull season ticket holders, students, casual fans. You know, they, I think they did a a 250,000 person survey essentially to find out what they were angry about, what they didn't like, what they think the game day atmosphere could have possibly needed to enhance things. And they looked at, you have to park two miles away and walk to the stadium. You know, like that's just a little bit much. You know, if you're talking about parking situations and logistics, just to go to an Alabama game, Wi-Fi potentially being, you know, a major issue. And I don't think that's a problem. I don't really care necessarily if I'm at a game, but a lot of people want access to their phones to be able to text and meet up with a friend who's yes. in a different section. Michigan stadium. It's a problem. Follow along with other games, maybe that are going on, send out your thoughts on Twitter, you know, mid game. And I, I just, I do think it's interesting because Alabama's at the top of college football, next to Clemson, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and your boy Dabo Sweeney, who you want to play for. But if you had to pinpoint it and get to the top of the list of reasons why attendance is down, why you don't want to go, why you're not as invested as you were as a younger sports fan, I guess what is that? You know, and is this something well, that you're grappling with? Not even just Michigan, Michigan State, college football, basketball, but in professional sports in general because – this isn't just a college problem. This well, I, is a sports problem. I, oh, there's no doubt about it. Well, number one, the experience at home is so much easier because of the you know big screen TVs and HD and all that stuff. Okay. The other thing for most people is it's the price. Most people, yeah. The, 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 that's it. It's 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 an expensive event. And when you go to a college football game, and I love it, and I think it's because even though at my age. You know, yeah, my kids go to college, so I enjoy it. But because I went to a, I didn't go to a college that had a football team, so I just love the experience because I never had it. And but it's an all-day event, and people don't have, for some reason, seven hours to spend 
where you drive to the Ann Arbor or East Lansing. If you want to tailgate before, it's fun. But then you go home after. I mean, it's traffic. It's, it's a hassle. It really is. And on a lot of the stadiums, like Michigan Stadium, it's not exactly the most comfortable place to sit. That has to do with the two. Well, that was one of the things that was detailed in the article, the uh, the uncomfortable bleacher seats and, you know, being packed in like sardines like you are out in Ann Arbor because they got to get 100,000 fans and keep up the streak and the most watched game in college football all day. It should be more about quality as opposed to, you know, quantity. And it just it needs to be an experience that you're going to have a ball with. It's going to be a party. It's going to be something that you remember and you really enjoy. And I don't know. Like, I, I think to me, if I were going to be doing it and I were, say, I went to Michigan or Michigan State and I had season tickets, I would be more pissed off at the amount of money that I'm spending to have these season tickets than enjoying whatever's going on in the field when they're going three and out and punting or, you know, doing a fullback dive and, and not being able to get there. That would piss me off, you know? And so money certainly plays a major role. I, I have to say that, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm $55,000 in debt. Money clearly is a major problem and a hurdle for a lot of these teams. I think one of the things that these guys are touching on is very important. And that is that the facilities in college football are not state of the art. These are old stadiums that have been added on over generations. These are not brand new stadiums like we have in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, the NHL, or the NFL. You see, in the NFL, it's not like you would still have the same stadium from 1920 that you just added on a bunch of times like you do in college football. In college football, there's not an arms race to build a new stadium. It's just to make the old stadium bigger. I mean, yeah, you got Lambeau Field and, say, Soldier Field in the NFL, but those have been largely completely renovated. And if you go to college football games, you don't have all the bells and whistles, the big screen TVs, all the different food options. It's just not the same. You got to go there for the experience of being in the pageantry and the energy of your school. But in the NFL, it's much more of a fan friendly experience. I think that has a lot to do with things. Now, finally, Around the Dial is here for you with life advice. And that's why we tap into the life advice of Joe DeCamera and John Ritchie on WIP in Philadelphia. What do you do when your wife comes home the next morning as you're leaving for work? I'm having problems with my relationship. My wife and I were fine until she started hanging out with her old friend from high school and things have changed. She's staying up all night hanging out with this so-called friend whose name is Ashley. Uh, even caught her a few times not coming home until the next morning when I'm ready to leave for work. Things has changed. She's not saying I love you as much. She's changed her password on her phone, so I can't look at it. Am I overreacting? Should I be as worried as much as I am? And what should I do to fix this? Well, I don't think you're overreacting. I mean, if, if she's not coming home at the end of the day, particularly... If she's not communicating to you, why? I mean, hey, sometimes there's some scenarios. Maybe you're out with some friends. You're catching up, whatever. You're having fun. Maybe you're having some drinks. Stay at the other friend's house. Like, that's okay, but make sure you communicate that. Um, if she's not communicating that to you, then you certainly fundamentally have a problem, I hate to say, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, if she's not telling you she loves you as much, that's, you know, probably a telltale something's not quite right the password thing i mean i don't even know how to what to say to that i mean i i guess you know your wife's password which fundamentally you got to ask yourself what's going on with that anyway so i would just say sir that uh it does not sound to me to be particularly good if you're asking for my advice 
my advice is that is the point of the segment. As pa- as painful <laughs> as it is, you got to hit it head on. You got to you got to ask her what's going on. I think you got to you got to have a real conversation with her, and and you got to be prepared, perhaps to hear some bad news. You got to be prepared for the possibility she might lie to you and string you along, which would be unfortunate. And you got to read that situation, and you got to hope for the best. But you got to you got to find out what's happening. I, I think it's you know honestly as simple as that. But it's a complex situation. But you got to hit it directly. You got to ask her what's going on. John, you agree? Yeah, uh, open. Make it a point that uh, you feel like there has. You need more information. You are concerned. You, you got to stress first of all. You love her, and you have been hurt by her. You know, not being around as much, and you're just curious if. Uh, if there's anything, maybe you go, hey, let's all go out together. You know, like you and Ashley are spending all this time together. I kind of feel a little left out here. And we don't know if, the, if there are kids involved or not. But, yeah. you know, it, it, hey, uh, I like to go out too. Seems like you guys are having a lot of fun. Let's all go out together sometime. I think her response to that could give you a little bit of indication. You know, like if, she's, if she shuts that idea down, then maybe you do have to yeah. dig in a little deeper. But, you know, it, it is uh, the staying out all night thing. you you got to hit that and, and yeah, say, listen, that's, that's no I, joke. imagine, w- would, would you be hurt if I did the same to you? Would you be jealous? Would you be worried about my well-being? Yeah. I think you would. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you got to just hit it. you got to talk. you gotta, you got to sit down and talk. Try to go out and join them sometime and, yeah. and see. Maybe you'll find that there's nothing to worry about, that they're just catching up on old times and, and you know, behaving irresponsibly like high schoolers because that's when they knew one another last. Yeah. Maybe it's gotten away from them a little bit, and you can sort of help keep it in check if you go, go along. Either way, good luck. Look, I think the fact of the matter is this Ashley is a bad influence. I mean, you just... You can't trust your wife around Ashley anymore. They are clearly going out and doing really awful things, very irresponsible things. And you need to make sure Ashley's not in your wife's life anymore else. This is going down the wrong road. This is like the bad friend in high school. Ashley's back and you need to do something. Say something. You just can't let Ashley dominate your household this way. That's the best in your sports talk for Friday, August the 2nd. We'll see you on Monday, everyone. Thanks for listening to Around the Dial. Subscribe now for the best daily recap in sports talk on Radio.com or the Radio.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.